Welcome to Just Theory. In this episode, we had the privilege of speaking with Baroness Hale of Richmond, the former president of the UK Supreme Court between 2017 and 2020, as well as a renowned academic and one of the most esteemed figures in the history of the UK judiciary. We speak about the challenges and the beauty of judicial work, the relevance of practical wisdom in judging, and Baroness Hale's years of experience on the bench and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. So, without further ado, I present you episode 10, the one with Baroness Hale. Thank you, Baroness Hale, for joining us today. This is very much appreciated. We had the pleasure of meeting you before at the Inspirational Women of the Law uh, well, awards and, and exhibition in Newcastle several years ago, um, but in a different capacity back then. Uh, today, we were wondering if we could touch, so, so, touch upon some questions on, on jurisprudence and, and judicial practice, but not in a theoretical manner, because we do appreciate that jurisprudence is a, people have a very complicated uh, relationship with jurisprudence. Well, certainly jurisprudence in the sense of legal theory. Obviously, we have a much less complicated uh, acquaintance with jurisprudence in the sense of case law. Yes, of course, we, there are two ways uh, of speaking of jurisprudence. Uh, and uh, our podcast is very much philosophical. However, today we wanted to ask you questions that are more general about judicial uh, role um, and also uh, philosophical questions, really, that all of us uh, are often facing. Um, one such question or one such dimension which I picked up um, in your interviews uh, is your commitment to thinking outside of the box. So, for example, when you were sworn in um, as a Lord of Appeal in Ordinary, um, you nominated uh, two academics, if, I, if I'm correct, uh, one uh, being Baroness O'Neill, uh, an established uh, and distinguished philosopher. Um, instead of uh, asking two law lords uh, to be um, your supporters in that capacity. So this key inspiration of thinking outside of, box, of the box and doing things differently um, is one dimension that I think you would share uh, with philosophers. So I was just thinking how important it is to think outside of the box and how important it is for the judge to have a philosopher on their side. Well, thinking outside the box can come in comparatively trivial senses, can't it? Uh, I chose uh, those two very distinguished academics, one a philosopher and one a scientist, uh, because I knew them very well. They had been the chair of a charitable foundation of which I was a trustee, and I wanted to demonstrate that my background and links were as much in the academic world as they were in the justice system, um, but a comparatively trivial thing. More difficult is thinking outside the box when you're actually trying to decide legal questions. To what extent can you go outside the parameters of the argument which has been presented to you? This is a difficult and controversial question. And to what extent can you bring in your own researches and your own thoughts uh, to the deciding of a case. I have always thought that you should be able to do this, but you've got to do it in a responsible way uh, and you've got to share any of your thoughts that 
the parties might need to make a comment on with them before you introduce something that they haven't mentioned to you. But that's, that's material. The, the, the question of whether you go outside the box in terms of the arguments, the way in which the case has been presented, I think you will find that most of us draw distinction between public law cases and private law cases. If it's a public law case, well then we may very well be prepared to expand the argument beyond that which the public authority, the government and the individual or the business uh, have uh, framed it. But if it's a private law case, the parties have chosen the ground on which they want to fight. It's much more difficult for us to come along and say, but I think you should be fighting about something completely different. Um, and on the whole, we don't do that um, because mm -hmm. they may have very good reasons for the way in which they have framed uh, the debate between them. Of course, the one qualification for that is that if you're dealing in children's futures, to some extent in families' futures, or in the futures of people who lack the capacity to make decisions for themselves, well then your duty is to do what's best for them and therefore you can think uh, beyond the cases which have been presented by the various people appearing in front of you. Mm. You've touched upon so many uh themes that I'm sure Alexandra also <laughs> spotted here, including the boundaries uh, mm. and confines of judicial decision making. But one final point that you made and the reference to mental capacity um, features quite prominently in your work and also in your, in, your, um, in your past. And that's again a connecting theme between certain philosophical approaches who are committed to the notion of agency, autonomy, um, personal freedom and responsibility. This is something that we see a lot in your judgment in the Montgomery case, for example. So this is a very, very prominent theme throughout your, uh, your jurisprudence. Uh, I was wondering if you could say something about uh, that commitment to uh, autonomy and emphasizing um, that human beings are agents responsible for their actions or omissions um, that the law must perhaps recognize to a greater extent, or perhaps we are we, we, we have the balance right. I don't know what's your thoughts on that. Well, my thoughts are no doubt not very coherent ones, as is often the case, uh, but there has been a tendency in the law historically at least, not to recognize the agency of women. So a number one driver in thinking about autonomy has been thinking about women's autonomy. And of course that comes up in the cases about negligent sterilizations where women became pregnant when they never meant to be pregnant uh, and trying to get uh, the courts to recognize that this was a gross invasion of a woman's bodily integrity and personal autonomy, and that that was the real problem with it, rather than the financial costs of bringing up the resulting child. I think I did get that message across to the men, uh, but uh, it did require quite a vehement judgment in order to do that. So that's number one. And Montgomery, of course, again, 
is a case about women's autonomy uh, in decision-making around childbirth. Um, then of course you move on to children and to what extent can children be allowed to make their own decisions? Uh, and what I always thought about that was that we're very keen on making children responsible for their misdeeds in criminal law, you know, and we've even abolished the presumption that they don't know that what they are doing is wrong or against the law. Uh, but at the same time, we're very reluctant to recognize children's autonomy uh, in uh, decisions about themselves and about their future and in other areas of the law. Uh, and so that's, mm -hmm. that's another theme. And then we come on to people who lack capacity, where again, there's a, a big debate, as I'm sure you know, between um, whether what decisions are made on their behalf should be in their best interests as judged by other people, or whether uh, we should try and uh, work out what they would have decided had they been able to do so. But of course, what we've done in, um, in UK law is something of a, a fudge between the two. We've said the basic thing is best interests, but best interests includes doing, uh, unless it's clearly contrary to their best interests, what that person would have wanted to do had they um, had the capacity to decide. Uh, and mm. I mean, it's a simple thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> when you're, when you're uh, deciding what to give somebody to eat, it makes no sense to try and feed them things that they don't like eating. You might just as well uh, take their food preferences subject of course to health and so on and so forth into account when deciding what to offer them to eat and that's something no matter how mentally incapacitated somebody is they almost certainly have got food likes and dislikes it's, mm. it's fascinating he hearing about this because what transpires to me is that legal training is as important to a good judge or should be as important to a good judge as the certain interdisciplinarity and, and practical wisdom and I wonder how we can reconcile it in a world where judges are constantly in a public eye. And, and I think the public expects both, you know, it's very visible in the US what's happening with the Supreme Court and the leaked, leaked opinion uh, in Dobbs. It's becoming very apparent that there is an immense pressure on the court to play partisan wars and, and, and engage in those political activities. And there's this temptation to say that, oh, we just need the legal education and we need the judges to just stick to the law, whatever, however defined and probably in more formalist sense. I wonder how we can reconcile this with the very real need and how we can translate it, this need for very practical wisdom to the society. Well, it's not possible to draw clear comparisons between the situation in the United States and the situation in the United Kingdom. And that is, of course, because in the United Kingdom, the Supreme Court and no court has power to strike down provisions in acts of the UK Parliament. We don't have a written constitution that makes anything that it chooses to do unconstitutional. And we don't have political appointments to the judiciary. Um, I can say that with complete confidence. Uh, 
because uh, all of the appointments that I had, which were the result of the traditional tap on the shoulder method, as opposed to uh, an open and transparent application-based process, two of them were by uh, Conservative Lord Chancellors, Prime Ministers, two of them were by Labour Lord Chancellors, Prime Ministers. Uh, so I think I'm the living embodiment of the fact that we don't have political appointments in, in, in this country. So we are not subject to the same sort of pressure to conform to the expectations of those who appointed us or supported our nomination in the way that uh, is true in the, in the States. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that when hard choices have to be made in interpreting what the law is, that um, a certain type of legal mindset doesn't come into the equation. Of course it does. Uh, and the extent to which that may be influenced by contemporary uh, political pressures, very controversial. Mm. I mean, there will be people who think that certain recent decisions of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, since I and two other justices retired, three other justices retired, have rode back on the implementation of human rights in the United Kingdom, um, compared with some of the earlier decisions. I'm, I don't think it's sensible for me to go into detail, but there are people who think that that is what has been going on. It's consistent with a particular view that the uh, justice, the present justices, or the, what the leading ones have, but on the other hand, it also is contemporaneous with uh, an attack by the government on the Human Rights Act. I'm not sure that's an answer to your question. It answered the first part of your question. Um, I'm not sure whether it answered the second part of your question. I'm, I'm not sure if there is an answer to my question, to be honest, because a lot of those conflicts and a lot of those dilemmas are almost paradoxical in nature. And I think they would be, if we could resolve them, if we could resolve uh, the issues of, you know, ever being uh, the legitimacy of the court being ever questioned uh, by political fractions that do not like the outcomes of, of you know, constitutional cases, I, I don't think we can ever avoid that. But what I find always fascinating is that if we rely on the studies of the pu uh, public opinion of the court, it actually doesn't shift, at least doesn't seem, seem to be shifting that much regardless of the political outcomes. It seems like out of all the branches of power, the, the court maintains its position as a, as a relatively trustworthy. So I don't think there is, I, I genuinely don't think there is a way out of it. I was just very curious to hear your thoughts on the matter as somebody with first-hand experience of it. Mm. I found it very, very fascinating and again made me think of the comp complexity uh, of judicial decision making. It's not simply uh, delivering decision uh, on the purely legal matter, uh, especially in um, the highest uh, appellate courts in the Supreme Court, you will be faced with novel decisions and novel cases that are not necessarily covered by the existing precedent and the boundary between making a decision that could appear to some 
political in nature uh, is sometimes difficult to be drawn. And this also takes me to, to, to this idea of dealing with imperfection and complexity that you did mention again in previous interviews. That a judge, again, faced with a novel, novel decision, novel, novel judgment, sometimes uh, must reconcile competing demands, whether this is a demand between uh, principle and policy, or perhaps competing, um, competing rights, uh, freedom of expression um, and privacy right, for example. So this made me wonder, when you face um, incommensurability of some kind between principle policy or competing rights, do you approach this more methodically, where you accord priority to some kind of uh, concerns, perhaps deontological concerns about fundamental rights, um, or this is more kind of, of an intuitive process that is decided on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the circumstances of the case. How do you approach complexity and competing, uh, competing demands uh, that judge must sometimes, in a tragic fashion, <laughs> reconcile? I think it's both of those things. Uh, by definition, the cases that come to the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom, at least, involve arguable points of law of general public importance. So there are cases where the answer is not clear. But you have to start with the existing materials that point you in the direction of the answer. If you are interpreting legislation, well, then there are existing principles of how you interpret legislation. Um, and so you, you look at the words and you apply the principles to them including, of course, the purposive principle of construction. So you look at what the purpose of the legislation was and consider which meaning is best going to further the purpose of the legislation and so on. There are plenty of principles. So that's the way you tend to do it. And the same is true if you're looking at uh, a case involving the common law, judge-made law. Again, you go back to the earlier decisions and what were the principles that you can distill from the earlier decisions, and then you attempt to apply that to the novel situation. So that is, in a sense, on a case-by-case -case basis, but it is, we're not plucking the answer out of the air. Uh, we hope that we are reasoning from the materials that have gone before uh, to produce uh, an answer which is consistent with those materials. I mean, there still are choices, obviously, and, uh, you know, values come into the choices that you make in those. But the discipline of doing things the judgy way uh, is a very helpful start um, because it, it gives you the tools with which to try and arrive at uh, a sensible conclusion. Hmm. It would be right to say that this is why the diversity and increasing the diversity of thought in the court matters. Because if we automatically expand the available number of, of principled variations of principled approaches, there is a higher chance that by, I would imagine, by enabling the principled debate, you can arrive at the right answer. <laughs> that assumes there's a right answer. Um, and, and with many of these cases, there is no one right answer. There is the one that the court uh, arrives at uh, and which will last for a while that may not be the final word on the matter, as we happen to know. Uh, but yes, I think that is um, 
an argument for diversity. Um, there are many different dimensions of diversity, of course. One of them is diversity of background and experience. And I do think that's very important because I have come to certain issues I know from my background as a woman, my experience of living a woman's life, probably my academic experience um, and many other aspects of, of my experience, which are different from that of my colleagues. Uh, and I think that's a good thing because you know, I could perk up and say, but have you thought about this? And then they think about it and they think, oh yes, you may have a point or no, that's the answer to this. So that sort of debate, which goes on amongst judges in collegiate courts is a very healthy thing. And the broader the background and experience of the judiciary, the better. The question of judicial values, you know, your approach to judging, uh, well, you can get that. You can have nine um, middle-class white men who will nevertheless have a different approach to judging. And this is, history tells us this. We um, study, for example, the US Supreme Court. Um, and you could, so that is something that different people can have. It's a different mentality that they have. Uh, and that's always been with us. But I think that the diversity of experience is good at setting itself against certain versions of the mentality. Since we with the topic of diversity, if I may ask, you did mention um, the judicial appointment process uh, earlier on, and that now it differs with the judicial appointments commission as opposed to on the tap on, on the shoulder method, which significantly increases the number of applicants um, for selection available for selection. Um, but this is in a way a soft soft measure, uh, encouraging diversity at appointments as opposed to adopting quota when appointing, uh, when appointing judges. So I was wondering, what's your views on positive action and encouraging that diversity in judicial profession? Um, do we take the right approach right now or should we, should we be more radical um, in terms of um, adopting perhaps quota or uh, harder measures to encourage diversity in judicial profession? I have always said that I am in favor of what in this country would be called affirmative action, which is taking positive steps to encourage a wider range of people to apply and, which is essential part of that, being very constructive and forward thinking about the way in which you assess the potential of that wider pool of candidates. So I'm all in favor of doing all of that um, and it's beginning to happen. Um, I've never said that I'm in favor of positive discrimination in the sense mm -hmm. of you have two candidates and you pick the one who is the less good of the two because they come from a less well-represented group in the um, uh, mm -hmm in the judiciary. Uh, I don't, to do that consciously would I think uh, be bad for both sides. Uh, it would uh, not improve the quality of the judiciary uh, and it would cast doubt upon 
the appointment of all the people in the less well-represented groups, even if they had been appointed because they were the best. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I'm not really in favour of doing that. But at the same time, I recognise that it's incredibly difficult to define what you mean by the best. And different people, because I've experienced this, obviously, chairing appointments commissions for the Supreme Court, um, different people have different ideas of what makes the best candidate. And if you have five people on the appointing commission, one of them will be looking for a particular sort of legal experience. One of them will be looking for a particular sort of social awareness. And one of them, another will be looking for, oh, I don't know, um, expertise in a particular subject. They'll all be looking for different things or weighting the different things that we all agree that we want in different ways. So deciding who's the best is a simple way of putting a very complex issue. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that I think that we shouldn't still be trying to appoint the best. That's interesting. Can I just, just since we're on the subject of nomination, uh, I remember with one of our past guests, we discussed uh, the idea of legal training for judges and how there are certain jurisdictions where you effectively choose to become a judge at the very beginning of your career. What are your thoughts on that model? Would, would it support uh, producing quality quality judges or, or quality, I don't want to call it outcomes because that sounds incredibly corporate and unnecessary, uh, but would you think that it would further, you know, an ever improvement or excellence among the judiciary, or perhaps it's, it's a better approach to elect from people who actually practiced or who taught or who had a more, a different, a wider variety of experience with the law? I am sure that there are excellent judges in each of those systems. Um, so I wouldn't want to say that one of them was necessarily better than the other, but in the common law world, our practice is uh, to expect people to have um, had experience outside the judging before they become judges. Um, it's, we, we now accept a wider range of experience outside the judging, which is a good thing, um, but uh, we don't uh, have judging exams, really, um, and we certainly don't have the system in, in most of continental Europe, where you do a law degree and then you choose, you're going to be an academic, you're going to be a practitioner, you're going to be a judge, and then you go to judging school and you do the judging exams. Well, we haven't uh, done that, I think, in any of the common law countries. Uh, the advantage of having a life outside judging, obviously, is that you have a broader understanding of how the world works, how the commercial world works, or how various aspects of the world, but I think particularly the commercial world, because that's the, that's the um, context in which people are most um, laudatory of our common law way of, of going about things. Um, and we think that uh, that practice is a good training for, for being a good judge as well. Um, the practice of actually being in court or experiencing what judges do to you uh, might or might not turn you into a good judge. There are 
different ways of thinking about that because there are some people who are very good advocates who make very bad judges. There are some people who are very good advocates who make very good judges, but there are some who make very bad judges because they cannot put, take their advocacy hat off and put their judging hat on uh, and remain silent and neutral and um, as unbiased as they possibly can be uh, in the course of, of doing their judging. Um, whereas I imagine that somebody who has not been an advocate would not be subject to that same temptation to behave like an advocate that can sometimes happen in common law countries. Uh, um, so I can see there are arguments uh, either way. There are some countries that do both. Um, in the Netherlands, they do have some people who embark upon a career in judging, and they do have some people who are appointed later on. And I think that may be true in Norway as well. So you have a, a variety of experiences, which might be the best, uh, but actually I, I think ours is good. Half this of the world and the commercial world probably think so too. Mm. So <laughs> mm. uh, This again makes me think of the importance of context and recognizing intricacies of the context in which whatever decision we are making is being made or whether these are practical solutions on appointments and nominations. All of this, to some extent, will depend on the um, jurisdiction we're looking at or um, the situation, perhaps, that, that is present at a given time and place. So temporal and spatial reflection was, again, a prominent theme, theme in philosophy, the way in which ideas change over time and the responses uh, to those ideas change over time. And my question is really... Is, is that judicial decision-making which shapes reality, or perhaps it's other way around, that uh, judicial decisions are just a reflection of the changing reality, especially when faced with those novel cases? When you have a novel case, is it, so to say, the consciousness which shapes reality, or, or reality is shaped by consciousness? Again, just to use a somewhat philosophical metaphor here. Um, which, which way? Uh, around does judicial uh, decision-making goes, or perhaps both ways, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's the philosophical equivalent of the chicken and egg question, yes. isn't it? <laughs> Which comes first? Mm -hmm. uh, and my own observation, uh, not necessarily always in judging, but in law reform and the development of the law, is that society and public opinion move in a particular direction the law then catches up and may move a little bit further than society and public opinion has moved. And then um, society and public opinion catch up and move a little bit further. And it goes on like that in a, in a series mm -hmm. of, of, of steps. Uh, that I seems to be the general pattern. Mm -hmm. I suppose Montgomery is a good example here, because yes. in Montgomery, uh, the judgment reflects what the medical profession adopted uh, as their practice long ago in approaching the patients and asking the patient uh, for their uh, wishes um, and choices or making a decision together with the patient. But Montgomery goes even further by adopting this subjective element and saying you need mm -hmm. to ask uh, this concrete patient in, be, before you and in front of you, not simply uh, an average patient. So, so I wonder if, if that Montgomery is that kind of decision which looks, which embraces the existing practice, but also pushes, uh, pushes the field uh, further. Yes, I, I, I would agree with you. Uh, but there's something else sitting there as well, which was that 
the medical practice, at least the official medical practice as recommended by the official bodies in England and Wales, not necessarily in Scotland, and of course Montgomery was a Scottish case, had indeed moved beyond what the House of Lords had said the practice mm -hmm. was in the Sideway case. The House of Lords had been extremely deferential to the medical profession. Um, so the medical profession had moved on a bit, but of course so had the whole of mm -hmm. society, including the judges, no longer so deferential to the medical profession. Mm -hmm. um, and recognizing uh, that if there are choices mm -hmm. to be made um, by or on behalf of a patient, this is not a purely medical question. Mm -hmm. uh, since we are here, if, if I may ask about those, again, changes in medical profession and environment, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic was an unprecedented development, both uh, for uh, the uh, policymakers uh, and lawyers. Um, the recent decision of the High Court in the Cathy Gardner case, um, I'm not sure if, if that, that, that uh, came across, um, indicated to some extent unprecedented move um, for the recognition of the right to life um, in the circumstances of the, of the COVID pandemic. Is that one example of where the courts, even though obviously it's not, it's not the Supreme Court making that decision, so that's again controversial what, what they've done to, to some extent, but when you faced with a complete novelty, a situation as novel as COVID-19, is there some leeway, even for the lower courts, to respond to that reality in a creative fashion and uh, in a fashion that embraces um, the change um, most effectively? Uh -huh. Well, there is always, of course, um, because all cases start in a trial court, mm. uh, and they're not always hearing witnesses and so on, but they all start in a trial court. So the problem is presented to the first instance judge or court mm -hmm. before it's presented to any appellate uh, mm -hmm. court. The constraint on the first instance court in the common law system is that they have to follow binding precedent from the higher courts. But if there is no binding precedent from the higher courts, well then of course they have to make up their own minds about what the answer is. That's, that's what they have to do, um, just as the appellate courts, when they come along, if it goes on appeal, will have to do the same thing. It's uh, it, it's an inevitable part of judging. And when I was a first instance judge, there were several cases where I had to uh, fly mm -hmm. blind in the sense that there, there was nothing to tell me um, how I should be deciding the particular case. Um, so yes, there is uh, the possibility of being creative. Nothing wrong with that. Um, is that very stressful? Sure that, sorry. <laughs> is that very stressful? Is it? Is it actually a situation that, on a judge who delivers a decision in a novel case, imposes a certain anxiety or? or it sounds stress? like a lot of pressure and yeah, a lot that's of responsibility. Like, also. I, if I was to make that decision, I will be like literally on. You know, it's, I'm creating it's, here. I mean, designing a novel point of law is no more difficult for those of us who like points of law than deciding who is telling the truth. 
And of course, all the time you are deciding who is telling the truth or what the best course is and so on. So deciding facts, exercising discretions, uh, deciding points of law, these are all potentially stressful. <laughs> um, uh, and it depends on the context, how stressful they are. You know, taking risks is stressful. And part, I believe part of the job of judging is actually to take risks which other people, because of the professional constraints they're under, cannot take. So um, judges dealing with uh, children cases should be prepared to take risks that the social workers who bring the case before them have not been prepared to take. Um, that's just one example. Mm -hmm. So no, being a judge is not for the faint hearted, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> that's the nature uh, of the beast. Uh, I'm not sure that COVID, COVID introduced some um, dramatic facts and some even more dramatic uh, legal responses to it. Um, you know, very hastily introduced legislation, very draconian effects, um, but with quite a lot of fuzzy edges, the first regulations, uh, and no doubt it's those fuzzy edges which have uh, uh, contributed to some of the legal dilemmas, which are only now coming up. Because what was interesting was how few cases came up during the lockdown to challenge what was being done. Mm. Uh, it's all being done retrospectively, which I think is a great shame, uh, but that's often the nature of the beast with, um, with, with judging, you know, you are judging what happened in the past. Mm. This is very interesting because it brings me uh, to a question of legal education. Uh, because if we think about holistically about the role of a judge and responsibility, all the responsibilities of a judge, uh, as you just described them, I wonder how your academic career and a remarkable one at that helped you in your role as a judge and whether you think that, uh, whether it impacted your view on the future of legal education and whether we should be teaching law students, it's now an ongoing debate and it's ever ongoing debate, whether we should be teaching law students the, the practical uh, and, and the pragmatic or whether we should also introduce the theoretical. <laughs> well, funny you should say that, um, as I've just been um, having conversations along those lines uh, in another university. Uh, but I think university legal education should encompass all strands. Uh, you're you're um, positing a dichotomy between practical and theoretical, but actually, what the law is, is doctrine, which is not quite theory in the sense that you're thinking about it, not philosophical theory, and it's not quite practice. It is the legal materials, the legislation, the decided cases that make up the body of the law uh, that have to be learnt and how to use them, how to read them, how to understand them, I think, is the basic task of a law degree in legal education. On top of that, of course, to understand them in their historical, social, economic context, 
adds to the understanding and is important and is particularly important when it comes to the possibility of future developments and to have an eye to the practical implications of a particular sort of decision that is also important so you need to do the lot but the basis i think of legal education has got to be how to be a good lawyer we should write it down somewhere this is honestly how to be a good lawyer i think it should be on uh, in newcastle law school as you enter above the door <laughs> as a motto <laughs> yeah uh, I was just thinking that this connects really well to the to our first question uh, that we typically ask uh, our speakers um, on um, what you were like, what was it like for you uh, to be a student and what it is that you would advise um, yourself uh, as a student? Oh, well, I think that I had a very good on the whole quite traditional legal education at the University of Cambridge, where the focus was on teaching us to be good lawyers, teaching us how to uh, read the legal materials, how to understand the legal materials and how to work with them to solve practical problems. It's the wonderful thing about law exams. You're given a problem. There may or may not be a right answer to it, but what you're asked to do is reason your way from the legal materials to an answer. Uh, and that was what I most enjoyed about um, reading law at the University of Cambridge many, many years ago now. And what I got the impression, talking with law students uh, not far from here yesterday, that's what they like too. They like this sense that you're doing something doctrinal um, and um, rooted in the materials but it has a practical outcome, X wins or Y wins or whatever. So you can see uh, the, the human or the business uh, story to it all. And in, so to say more personal sense, what would you tell your student self? How would you advise to do things perhaps differently that you did or perhaps perceive things differently than you did or you just... Uh, happy <laughs> with with the with the education you received and an experience you had yes. and your responses to that experience no i wouldn't tell my student self to do things any differently from how i i did um i thoroughly enjoyed um, not only my legal studies but also my university experience mm -hmm. which was uh, a big change from my previous life uh, and it was wonderful and I made the most of it so any student has to be told to make the most of the intellectual but also the social and cultural and sporting and political even any opportunities uh, that come their way that, that they can enjoy because I think what everybody has to do uh, in their education is to enjoy enough of it to make them work hard at it and be good at it. But I, I'm not going to say that as advice to my student self because that's what I did. Um, I think so, what, what, you, what you said was, what do you wish you could tell your student self, which is a different right. thing. True. That was the question. <laughs> um, and I think what I wish I could tell my student self was, 
wow, do you know what's going to happen to you? (laughs) (laughs) And with that in mind, who would you say or what was the biggest inspiration in your career? But it's been different at each stage. You know, childhood, parents, undoubtedly. Um, University, some inspirational teachers. As an academic, some inspirational colleagues. As a legal practitioner, inspirational, successful leading barristers as a, and judges. And then as a judge, inspirational judges. So a different person or persons at each stage in, in my career. Uh, but possibly, uh, so that the culmination would be Lord Bingham, who I think uh, must count as the greatest judge in the UK in the 21st century, uh, who was a remarkably um, good judge, but also a, a very humane human being. Um, not saying he was perfect, but he was a very human and a good leader. Um, and so when I was president of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom uh, and a dilemma came up, one of my first questions was, well, what would Tom Bingham have done? Um, I wouldn't necessarily do what he would have done, but I wanted to try and work out what he would have done because uh, he was a, a good role model, at least for me. So if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? And that's, that's been described several times as the hardest question on the list by our guests. No, I think it's quite easy. Um, Desert Island Discs, it's either the Bible or the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> Choosing between them is not easy, but I think I would probably choose the complete works of Shakespeare. But it, it, it's a toss up, it's, it's really 50-50, but they're the obvious ones. There's, there's so much there. There's so much literature, philosophy, wisdom, history, stupidity. There's everything. All human life is in both of those books. There is even law. So, <laughs> Oh, yes, lots of law. Lots of law. Particularly in the Bible, of course. <laughs> yes. If not law, what alternative career path would you have chosen? I think I would probably have been an academic of some sort or a teacher of some sort. Um, If it had been possible uh, when I was uh, a student, I might have considered going into the church, um, which has got an awful lot in common with the law and with um, uh, academic teaching as well, in fact. You know, talk about dressing up and pontificating you know it's, uh, it's, uh, it's that uh, but I was quite religious uh, earlier in, in my life and there were features of the whole drama associated with, with, with the church which uh, plus the preaching of course which really appealed to me so uh, but of course that wasn't open to women um, when I was thinking about a career although one of my colleagues who read law at Cambridge and then went on to have a very successful career working uh, in the legal secretariat of the Council of Ministers in the European Union, when she retired, did qualify as a Church of England clergyman and I think is still practicing as such. So you can see the similarities. I think we are all very happy that you chose law in the end, I must say, so. (laughs) Well, I have absolutely no doubt 
the moment I got started on, on reading law, I had absolutely no doubt that quite by chance, really, I had made the right choice. And the final question for today, finish this sentence. One thing no one talks about in the legal sector is. That's the most difficult question. And what I have come up with is privilege. Um, that is the inherent advantage that certain people have in the justice system, both as practitioners, as judges, and as participants. Um, I mean, I could have said class, mm. which comes to much the same thing. And we don't talk enough about it. But I think it's quite useful to focus on the, the privileged side rather than the lower class side of it. Um, because I think it is something that we ought to talk about a great deal more than we do. Agreed. Amelia? Could I just throw in last, last final, final question to the mix? And this is one that I asked you many years ago when you visited us for the inspirational women of the law. And that was well, it's a not question. so very long ago. <laughs> um, a while ago. Yes. And uh, it was, I think, just after you delivered um, the, the judgment in the, in the Miller case, in the um, prorogation case. And you've been wearing your... Uh, brooch, your spider brooch on that uh, on that day. Um, if I remember correctly, you said that it didn't symbolize anything, it didn't stand for anything. But many people read into the brooch very quickly, seeing, uh, interpreting it as I'm about to deliver a serious judgment and the government must reckon <laughs> with, with the court now. That's, that's how it was interpreted. So I was wondering if, what's, it, what's your thoughts on symbolism and nonverbal communication? Does the judge speak to the world just with their words, but also their conduct, their actions, the way they dress perhaps, and uh, how the symbol uh, communicates uh, sometimes more powerfully with, uh, with the wider public than, than a spoken word? That's just adding more pressure on yeah. top of all. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was supposed to, <laughs> supposed to be a simple question, but I, I just oh, couldn't resist to it, ask about the brooch. <laughs> it's not a simple question. Um, if you'd asked simply about the brooch, there was no symbolism involved in that. Other than that, I do or got into the habit of always wearing a brooch. It was the way of kind of lightning the mood of the rather sombre clothing that we had to wear uh, when we weren't wearing robes. Um, so there was no symbolism involved. Um, if I'd thought about it, which I didn't, I would probably have chosen something slightly less open to interpretation. Because you know, most of my brooches are creatures. And so whatever the creature was, you know, it could have been a frog, it could have been a dragonfly, could have been a bug. You know, people might have read something into that. Um, so if I thought about it, I would probably have um, chosen a bunch of flowers or whatever, something, something anodyne. Um, I don't think that I had realized how prominent the brooch would look at a particular camera angle from the television. Um, of course, it's, it's 
not common for um, judgments, even of the Supreme Court, to be broadcast all over the world. This is not a, a, a normal phenomenon. But of course, if you take the wider question, um, there are a lot of symbols. I mean, in a way, the wearing of robes is a symbol. The wearing of wigs is a symbol, one with which I profoundly disagree. Um, the, uh, the way in which the courtroom is configured is a symbol. See, in, um, in the US Supreme Court, for example, you've got a straight bench for the nine justices and a podium in front of it, which the uh, lawyers, when they can get a word in edgeways, harangue the justices. Each of the justices, of course, are firing, well, those who want to, are firing questions at them completely different from the configuration of the court in the UK Supreme Court, where everybody is on a level, the justices bench is curved, so the justices can interact with one another, counsel's bench is curved, and the whole thing looks quite like an oval conference table. So the atmosphere is different uh, and it's intentionally different. So huge number of symbols could go on and on and on. Uh, mm. That that's absolutely fascinating. I'm still glad that that brooch did acquire some significance. It's a, it's a, it's a rule of law symbol and a symbol that uh, government does not enjoy unlimited power. That's how people view it now. So I think that that speaks powerfully to to to, to imagination and uh, and to students to to, to people who. Um, do uh, see a symbol sometimes and which speaks more more powerfully than mm. than words um on this, uh, I, I think we can bring our <laughs> conversation to, to, to a conclusion now because, because we're running out of time. But thank you so much, Baroness Kale, for, jo for joining us. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating um, to have you and to explore uh, semi-philosophical themes uh, <laughs> with uh, the most uh, unique judge we had so far uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, in my view. And that's not to diminish anybody any other justices on the yeah. bench <laughs> no, no. Oh, well thank you both it's been very enjoyable uh... hi it's alexander here thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you like our project have any questions or would like to recommend a guest or a topic drop us a line on just.theory.project at gmail.com this season was made possible with the generous funding of newcastle university if you like you can buy us a coffee your support will enable us to continue our work. Just theory, changing the face of legal theory. <laughs>